Hello and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast sponsored by MWW. Uh, my name is John Reynolds, a host. Uh, coming up this week, we've got three five-minute interviews with editors. So we've got GQ's Dylan Jones, the New European's Matt Kelly and the Radio Times' Mark uh, Frith. Um, they were interviewed yesterday at the magazine festival organised by the PPA, the magazine trade body. So lots in there, such as if Theresa May would make a good uh, GQ cover star, uh, the Radio Times premiering TV shows on its website, and, and Matt Kelly defending the charges of racism of the weather uh, the New European should have published that Sajid Javid uh, cartoon. Uh, after that, we've got a, a longer interview with two founders of independent media agencies. So that's Good Stuff and December 19. Uh, Andrew Stevens from Good Stuff and Dave Barnett from December 19. Uh, for the sake of transparency, I should just say that I have done some work for December 19 in the past. Anyway, so first up is uh, Dylan Jones. Now I am joined uh, by the editor of GQ, Dylan Jones. Thanks very much for joining me, uh, Dylan. So it's 20 years as editor next year. I guess that's um, pretty significant. Are you doing anything? Is there any big celebration? And do you think you're likely that you'll be editing for another, well, 10 or maybe another 20 years? I certainly hope there isn't a celebration. Uh, I think that after about, um, uh, I think after about eight or nine years, I was um, starting to think about um, moving on, but the the enormous changes that have affected our industry and the challenges that those have presented us mean that the job that, that we're all doing now is completely different to the job we were doing a number of years ago. And it's a combination of you working on a, a newspaper, a website, a magazine, social platforms. And so it's a constant churn of material and it makes it for a very intoxicating environment. So arguably it's a lot more demanding the editor's job today than it was 10 years ago or just different challenges? It is more challenging. Um, It's more complicated, it's more complex. But I think that um, uh, in spite of all that, it's... uh, uh, it's it's very fulfilling. Okay. And in terms of you mentioned on stage, you talk, we talked a bit about Facebook and Google and some of the problems uh, publishers have with them in terms of the algorithm. And you complimented the Times on some of the the journalism they've done there. And then you mentioned that you think that regulation is imminent um, on Facebook and Google. Why are you so convinced that there will be regulation? And why are Facebook and Google? Why is the algorithm such a problem for publishers like you? It's not just a a problem for publishers like us, it's a problem for everyone. And I think that the proximity um, uh, of offensive material next to um, brand advertising has been an issue for lots of people. Uh, And I I drew attention to the Times' campaign because it does feel like a campaign. And I think that they're one of the few people uh, to take the, the threat of Facebook and Google very, very seriously, um, particularly as they're adamant that they're tech companies and not media companies. Um, and it's a very challenging world. It's a very fraught world. And I think that what the uh, what the Times has done has been um, has been incredibly laudable. Okay. And I just did it, before I came, I had a quick look at previous GQ covers. I might be wrong about this, but I don't think you've had many females on your cover, maybe Emma Watson, so you would never consider, or maybe you have had, uh, to have uh, Theresa May as a, a cover star or not? We have considered having Theresa May on the cover of the magazine, um, but we haven't considered it with any great seriousness. 
Right. So what does that mean? How far did that get? I just got to a, an idea in a you know a meeting, or was it much further? You didn't approach her or anything like that. Uh, no, we haven't actually. Um, the, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that, that Theresa May could be on her cover. I think people were quite surprised when we put uh, Jeremy Corbyn on our cover. Um, and uh, that caused quite a, um, quite a big stir. But it turned out to be a, a, a fantastic seller. But then we have had a history of putting politicians on our cover. Uh, Boris has been on our cover twice. Cameron has been on the cover. Sadiq Khan has been on the cover twice. Um, as yet, we, have, we haven't put Trump on the cover, but I think that might be a stretch too far. Okay, so Theresa May could, because she's quite stylish too, so she could be quite, arguably quite a good fit for GQ, maybe. Possibly. Okay. And, and finally, my first question, you, you carefully avoided when I said, I think, do, do you hope to be editing in, in five or ten years' time? But is that the hope still or not? Or... Oh, I, I really couldn't say. Hello, and now we are joined by Matt Kelly, who is the editor of The New European. So we just saw you on stage there, Matt. So can you just give us a bit of a, an insight into where you are at The New European in terms of how many issues you're in and in terms of circulation? So we're, uh, this, is, this week is issue 94, uh, which isn't bad for a paper that was just meant to do four issues. So we're coming into our second year anniversary and we are selling about 22,000 copies a week at £2.50 a time and we've got 8,000 subscribers. So we're, we're doing very well. Okay, and in terms of the mix, I mean, is that subscribers, is that that's primarily UK-based, or is that global now, or...? It's, it's, it's almost all UK-based. Uh, we do have some overseas subscribers. We have uh, some in, in, in the States and, and on continental Europe, mainly digital subscribers. But, uh, yeah, I would say 99% of our audience is UK-based. And on stage there, you sort of talked about taking it more populist. You mentioned the, you name-checked the Economist and the New Statesman. Can you give us a bit more detail about sort of plans going forward? Yeah, well, I referenced the Economist and the New Statesman only in the sense that I would like to make the New European continue to make it a broader proposition so it doesn't just become, it isn't a single-issue paper. I mean, it's got a very fantastic, I think, uh, cultural section. Half of it is an arts and culture section, which we're very proud of. So I want to get that element of it more to the front. So when people do get bored of Brexit, there is there's still a sustainable life for the new European. Okay, and last couple of questions. I noticed on Twitter last night you've republished this, uh, I guess, arguably controversial uh, cartoon with uh, which referenced Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary. Can you just, it's quite complicated. Can you just explain the backdrop to the cartoon and why you've republished it? Yeah, very briefly, um, we published the cartoon. Uh, it's a cartoon that depicts Sajid uh, Javid at his desk on his first day at the Home Office, and the legend above his head says... Sajid Javid takes over Amber Rudd's role at the Home Office mm. and then Sajid Javid is saying, I just want to settle in, get organised and then deport my parents. Mm. Now, not that passed without comment at all. Uh, Andrew Adonis, who's one of our columnists, uh, tweeted it and was taken to task by Sajid Javid himself, who took offence at it. We were accused of being racist. It is a cartoon about racism. It is a cartoon where it is expressing the irony of Sajid Javid, who talked himself about his, his mum and dad being immigrants, how they could have been deported by the Windrush uh, scandal. And so what happens, of course, the Twitter storm takes off. People with an agenda use it to be 
beat us up. But today I've written a thousand word rebuttal of, of all of the accusations made against us. It's absurd to suggest that the New European or myself or Andrew Adonis is, is racist. Uh, and, uh, and we won't put up with it. I don't see why we should. But it's, is it not a bit controversial actually republishing it? And I think Sajid Javid's father's dead, isn't he? I mean, have you apologised for that? Yeah, I, I apologise for Sajid Javid's father being dead. Why would I? I mean, he talked about... Sajid Javid talked at length about his father two weeks before to the Sunday Telegraph. He was the one who put the, his father into the public conversation, and that was those quotes were precisely the point of the cartoon. So Sajid Javid has no grounds to complain about us using his quotes from the Sunday Telegraph to make a political point, because that's precisely what he did. Okay, and finally, just in terms of the new European going forward, you're obviously part of the Archon uh, stable. There's no plans to uh, sort of take it in as an independent, you know, to, you know, no longer be owned by Archon or anything like that then? No, uh, it makes a contribution to the group, uh, bringing in lots of revenue, and uh, why, would we, why would we want to part with it? Right, brilliant. Okay, thanks for... At the Radio Times. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, Mark. So you're at the, um, the PPA Festival. You're, I presume you're speaking on the panel today, are you? Well, I'm, I'm, I, as we speak, I'm actually in the intro area because I assumed everyone would be here stealing magazines from the newsstand. I should, to paint a picture with words, when you come into the PPA Festival, there is this kind of newsstand area with a load of magazines, so I'm just nicking a load of those. So now my role today is pretty similar to how it's been for the last five years. So I'm emceeing a room, and I'm emceeing the Passion Room. Right. Which I didn't name myself, nor choose that I was going to be emceeing the Passion Room. But it's all very fitting because um, I'm incredibly passionate about what we're doing on magazines, what we're doing outside of magazines to connect even to an even greater degree with our audience and to provide them with more in challenging times. And those are the kind of subjects that are being aired today. Okay, so in terms of uh, the Radio Times, obviously still very popular. I think the last ABC figures uh, showed uh, continued success. I mean, what, what changes have you made since taking over? Has is, is it been sort of uh, uh, gradual? Has there been any substantive changes you've made to the, uh, the layout and the feel of the magazine? It's a gradual change. So um, you, people who see the magazine will see an enhanced role for Alison Graham, who's the voice of the magazine. She's our TV editor. Yeah. So she welcomes you to Radio Times every week. Um, my, my main concern is doing things above and beyond the magazine. This is a, a very successful brand, and our audience don't want radical change too quickly. So we've, you know, a few things have evolved. But the main things I'm looking at are kind of areas outside um, the magazine, the magazine does an incredible job, has an amazing team who makes sure that it's on point every single week. But we're also trying to get into new areas, so we've launched as people who will see the magazine this week mm. a new series where people can see episodes of TV shows first with us. So the new Sky Atlantic show, Patrick Melrose starring Benedict Cumberbatch yeah. starts on Sky Atlantic 9pm this Sunday but you can see it anytime from 2am on the Radio Times website and you don't even need to be a Sky subscriber you can see it for free. So all those people who think, I've heard a load about this show, what's it like? You can actually now um, see this episode for free from the early hours of Sunday morning and you can see it for 30 days on our website, which is a really big deal for us and they're paying us for it as well. So to get in that area, I want to be in a world where people um, 
access radio times in lots of different ways. You can get to the world of TV and radio in many ways without going through the Radio Times brand. I want to cut down those number. I want people to have to go through Radio Times to get to everything in the world of TV and radio. And what we're doing first episodes, what we're going to be doing soon with events, um, nationwide events, and in other areas as well, will show that what we're trying to do is just expand the area of TV and expand what we mean to our audience. Uh, is that just with that particular show, or is that you you're doing that with, with a number of shows, this, are you? We are in discussion for uh, there's three other shows that we've identified that we are keen to premiere, and we're doing this one first, and then we hope to roll out three. Probably by the time you get to the end of the summer, we we intend to have done three more. We want to be known as the place to go to to watch first episodes. If you can't wait to watch it on the TV, you can tell you can't. I presume you can't tell us what those shows are then. No, I can't. No, I mean it's it's yeah. um it. We're talking to a load of different platforms at the moment, a load of people who are interested in this kind of thing, because what we have to offer is huge. These are people who are highly engaged with um, TV. In the case of Sky, maybe don't have a Sky subscription yet. So for Sky TV, that's incredibly appealing. To have this, this huge audience who are so engaged with TV, but maybe don't have a subscription to what they offer, it's really interesting to have a conversation with us for them for that reason. Can you just talk about, I mean, I think continually the Radio Times, you see it quoted in the national press, don't you, in terms of they do continue to get the big interviews, uh, the big scoops in, in terms of what stars are saying. Is that, I mean, it, 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 you, I guess you don't have a problem uh, pulling in, uh, enticing big stars uh, to, to give interviews. But have you noticed, is that, is that becoming more difficult or in these times or not? It's not, because do you know what? We're there for um, these uh, people who make these shows um, the week that the shows are on so you know I, I people say to me are you really competitive or you know if a broadsheet magazine a supplement runs an interview with someone four weeks before the show is on um, is that a problem for you and it's not actually we want to be there the week people are making the decisions about what to watch so People do tend to come to Radio Times. So you got the example this week, Benedict Cumberbatch is on yep. the cover. He doesn't do very much at all, yeah. um, but he wants to do Radio Times because he knows that people who read Radio Times watch TV and are very discerning about TV and particularly favour quality TV, and certainly Patrick Melrose is that. And having a presence there the week the show is on is incredibly important to them. Us being there that week is what people want, is what our audience want. And then in terms of PR, you know, you just it's just wonderful. I, I swim every morning, and I um, before I go for my swim on a Tuesday, I sit in the um, foyer of the place where I um, swim right. and read all the papers, and it's just wonderful to see how much PR we get. It really gladdens the heart. And for everyone that gets to read that so-and-so is in Radio Times, so-and-so is talking to Radio Times, or we've broken this story, that's a potential reader. So it's really good business for us. Uh, okay, finally, what are you most excited about in the magazine sector at the moment? Any, any particular technology? or advancement or well we're um, we're doing a um, special issue next Tuesday which is all about the royal wedding and we've uh, expanded the pages for that and the thing I've most enjoyed in the last week is not having to worry about the cover because we've got uh, we had a competition for people to design the cover and 8,000 kids entered and we've chosen a little six-year-old boy from Raynham in Essex who's designed it and he's going to be on the cover of next uh, Tuesday's magazine and I have to tell you not having the stress of a cover and <laughs> putting it together I'm going to do that more often so um, look out for those kind of more special covers coming up soon and with the royal the royal wedding special have you got any uh, special writers? Have you, have you spoken to any sort of 
people close to the Royals? Yes, yeah, so we've got Kirsty Young, as some people will know, is hosting the uh, event for the BBC. So we have got her writing for us. We've also we're fascinated to know how it kind of works in the states, and it's a, you know we think it's a big deal here, even bigger deal in the states. They've got Richard Quest, British-born, but now lives and works in New York and works for CNN. Um, so he's talking about how it is over there. We've got the procession route. We're going to meet some people who are involved on the day. It's a very special issue and a lot of work's gone into it and we're very proud of it. Right, it's great. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the next part of the podcast. And I am delighted uh, to be joined by the founders of two independent media agencies, uh, Good Stuff and December 19. So we have Andrew Stevens, who is co-founder of Good Stuff, and Dave Barnett, who is a co-founder of December 19. Uh, so thanks a million for joining me, gentlemen. Uh, first up, can we just get a potted history of your own careers and a very brief overview of your respective agencies? So start with you, Dave. Oh, cheers, John. Thanks for having us. Um, so my career in advertising started at Hearts and Essex Mercury Group um, in telesales. And then I worked my way up to a field sales representative, which was come with a brand new Astra at the age of 18 okay. around the streets of Hertfordshire. Um, and then from there, I realized that there was these big national brands that were booking in full pages when I was chasing very small ads from local car dealers. Yeah. And it was, where do these big ads come from and realise that there was a world of agencies um, that were based in London and it's like, okay, I need to get myself um, involved in, in this world. Um, I went off travelling for a bit and just by luck shared a flat with somebody whose brother owned an agency in London yeah. um, and come back, hooked up with them and that was my first job in, in media, um, a media agency, which is yeah. a, an independent agency. Um, I worked there for a couple of years and then joined Universal McCann in 2000 yeah. and spent eight years there working on likes of Sky, um, Panasonic, L'Oreal um, and then 2007 um, children came along and I moved back out to Hertfordshire and the independent agency I'd, I started at had actually moved to about a mile of where I lived. Yeah. Um, so I went back out there for, for a couple of years, um, got an allotment um, and sort of went into semi-retirement and then the global recession hit and was, you know, things, things didn't work out as they'd hoped out there and I got myself back into London, a bit of time at Cara Initiative and started December 19 in 2010. Okay, Andrew, same question for you. Uh, well, I was a failed county cricketer, so I played county cricket for five, six years. And when I realised that that wasn't going to be my career, I needed to find something else. Yeah. Uh, my first job in the industry was at an agency called Austin West, so an independent back in the day, sadly no longer here. Um, I moved from there to Saatchi and Saatchi, spent six, seven years at Saatchi's where I met Ben Hayes, who's my co-founder. Yeah. When Saatchi's hived off media to Zenith, we then moved to Manigotlieb OMD. Sure. Uh, spent six years there, and then in 2003, Virgin offered both Ben and I the chance to leave Manny Gottlieb and Omnicom to set up Good Stuff with Virgin's backing. Um, and Good Stuff today, we're just over 100 people, yeah. we'll be about 150 million billings this year, and revenue in the region of about 11 million. Okay, and very quickly, which county cricket were you failed? Which county was that? Oh, there's only one county, Somerset. Somerset, there you go. Okay, so loads and loads to get through. Um, first up, the exit of Martin Sorrell from WPP obviously continues to interest uh, people. Mm. He did speak in New York earlier this week saying, I'm going to start again, I'm not going into voluntary or involuntary retirement. Now, I'll start with you on this one, Andrew. Um, do you think Sorrell's exit from WPP is anyway symbolic, that he represents the past, 
The days of these big holding companies like WPP getting bigger and bigger, bringing together media agencies' resources to increase buying power for clients, is that the past? And some have suggested that his strategy of horizontality was also misguided. Uh, I'm not sure it's all the past. Because I think um, as much of the much of the news about Sorrel leaving WP was surprising. It is an incredible success. I think what he's done to that group is mm -hmm. phenomenally impressive. Um, but was big change needed within WPP? Clearly, it does need it. Investors have been talking about it for some time. Clients are talking about change. So I think change was always going to happen. But I do think the world needs very big, global, large media agencies. So I don't think the whole model is broken. It needs to reinvent itself. Uh, but the world is big enough for in independents like ours in December 19 and the global agencies like Mediacom and OMD. There's no way, this is probably a bit uh, far-fetched, there's no way that good stuff can, can benefit at all from what's happening at WPP. Do you see it as an unsteady ship? Is there an opportunity for you to poach your clients or, or, or staff or anything like that or not? Hugely, to be honest, yes. I mean, you know, the amount of pitches that we currently have on now yep. and either that we are directly involved in or pitches that we know of, uh, there are a number of pitches that are coming out of WPP. Now, whether that is because of the Sorrel thing or mm. not, I'm not sure. The reality for UK business, probably not, because Sorrel would not have been directly involved. But certainly some of the big global pitches who may have had a relationship with Sorrel, I'm sure that will unseat and destabilise some of the big clients on a global basis. Okay. Uh, and for you, Dave, I, know, I don't think you've ever worked for a WPP agency, uh, but what was your impression of the media agencies like Mediacom and Mindshare? Are they, are they different to other agencies? Have they got a particular Martin Sorrell WPP stamp about them, do you think? No, I, they do now. I think when I was working in networks and joined networks back in the 2000s, there was clear personalities between yeah. agencies and, you know, we knew that the culture of, of mine, uh, Mediacom was very much a people-based and they looked after their people um, and Mindshare was very business-like and, you know, you wore your suits and um, it, it, mm. agencies had their personalities, but I think right. as they've sort of gone into aggregated buying points, yeah. um, they've kind of lost that over the years um, and so I think that's a real shame that they're sort of one of the same and they win business as a group and then just chuck it into the agency that, that haven't got a clash or they can grow from. Yeah. And, and lastly, but both of you, I mean, I think Martin Sorrell's 72, 73 now. Do you think he'll, if he starts on a career, do you think it's too late to, to make another go at it? Or is he someone who you should respect and fear, do you think, still? Oh, he would scare the hell out of me if he came up in competition against me, that's for <laughs> oh, sure. Okay. Uh, I mean, I don't think his age matters. Yeah, I think okay. he's, he's motivated by winning. He loves the industry. He gets the industry. He lives the industry. Uh, his black book is to die for. I think whatever he does, there's a very, very likely, very high chance that it's going to be hugely successful. Okay. So I hope it's not in competition with me. Okay. <laughs> so, so let's talk about your uh, agencies, uh, respect, uh, in, both in detail. So there are obviously similarities and differences. Obviously, good stuff is, is bigger, and I think it's fair to say more established. So if we compare billings, which is one metric, good stuff is billings now over 100 million a year, and December 19 over 50 million. And there's a difference in headcount and how you came into existence. But then again, we've also got similarities between the two agencies so like WPP at the moment you're both run by uh, dual bosses um, so at December 19 you obviously Dave you run the business for your co-founder Dan Pym so can you just tell the listeners what, what's the advantage and disadvantage of that structure um, I think that the advantage is that you've always got a, a trusted sounding board someone that you can shout at talk to um, and when you're you know some decisions are, are made Join or one of the if one of you is saying this is definitely the route you support the other to go down or if you're 
opposing it. So just having, I admire people that have done it on their own. And when I meet business owners that say that they've, you know, created and grown their business by themselves, and like hats off to you because I think that's a, a more difficult thing to do than to to have two of you in the business. Um, I've known Dan from working with him for seven years um, at, at UM, and knew that when we sort of come together and come up with the idea that you know we 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 knew that we worked together already very well. So there was that trust um, element was was there right from the start. Okay. So the, and, and the same question to you, Andrew. Um, I think it's vital, really, in our success. I think our industry is so incredibly complicated uh, and fast-moving that yeah. clients expect us to be experts at all the emerging trends, at being brilliant at servicing, at planning, at buying, at analytics. That I think the idea of one person running a media agency, I, th I think, is very difficult. I think two okay. brains help. Um, in our in in our case, good stuff. Ben is more the planner. I'm more the suit. Or as as the gag goes, he's the good and I'm the stuff. Okay. But it just works <laughs> when you know we're doing it together. Uh, so you're you surprised that not not more media agencies have got this dual structure? Then I mean, you, is, is it something that should you would have thought would have been um, you know panned out to other agencies or not? Or I I think it. it I've worked in agencies where there's been a dual structure mm. and it just depends on the two people that, you know, use a football analogy, you have joint managers that you think that would work well together, but there has to be that trust and that relationship and, and knowing your mm. business mm. partner has to be developed over years of working with them. I think thrusting two people together and asking them to co, you know, yeah. to, to, to build that under the immense pressure that there is from running a, 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 an agency anyway, I think I, I, I can't see it would be a very difficult thing to thrust on somebody without it forming over a period of time. Yeah, I think from, if you think about the range of decisions that we need to make within the business, mm -hmm. the reality is we've got an awful lot more decisions to make than a network agency. So if one, if one of us or two of us were running one of the networks, a lot of the decisions we need to make are not in our hands. Okay. So actually, whilst the agencies are bigger, the yep. breadth of the job that we do is wider and deeper than it is for the CEO of a network agency. Okay, so um, just in terms of how you came into being, obviously just over a year ago, Good Stuff became 100% independent after you bought out Omnicom's 20% stake. So can you just give the listeners uh, a, a, a bit of colour about why you made that move, Andrew? Well, it happened last year, I think, for three reasons. Um, I mean, clearly the market has changed, and we might talk about the degree to which the market has changed a little bit later. So I guess the context was, was right for change. Um, but the timing was right for us. It's good stuff. You know, we, we'd reached circa 70, 80 million worth, worth of billings. So in our own right, we felt we were a big enough, robust enough agency to go it alone. Uh, and the timing was fortunate in that, I think, for Omnicom, who were rationalising their brands, obviously M2M went... Yeah. Uh, Rocket has just gone into hearts and science. So at the same time that we wanted to come out, Omnicom wanted to focus on their on their core brands. Yeah. So it was good timing, really, for both Omnicom and and Good Stuff. Was it? You you weren't hamstrung in any way about that twenty percent? No, it wasn't preventing you. They didn't have like a vote or anything like that. I mean, it's, it wasn't. It doesn't hasn't freed you up in any way, has it? Or has no. It? I mean, I think that. I mean, yeah, a, a lot of the stuff that I talk about and write about is the independence versus the networks, but. You know, use this as an opportunity to, to thank Omnicom for huge help over the years and we would not be the agency we are without the help of certain key individuals down at Omnicom but the time was right for us to go our separate ways and Omnicom to focus on their global brands and us to focus on the UK. And you're not looking for more investors and you, you wouldn't no. go back down that route you're, no. you're fully you know independent for the future. 100%. Okay and with you Dave obviously you came out of IPG owned Universal Mechanic I mean do you still have 
are you still in contact with management at, at UM? I mean, do you, do you see yourself maybe one day UM taking a stake in your business? No, <laughs> okay. in, short, in a word, but um, we are still in contact with um, the guys down at UM. A, a lot of the, the senior management team have moved on since um, our days, but um, yeah, we, we've still got a good, healthy relationship. Um, we didn't create December 19 on the back of taking a client out of UM and that being our founding client, so we, we had that um, you know, goodwill and support from them, um, and they would you know, throw us a, a, a bone every now and then if there was a client that had been offered to them or, or was potentially speaking to them was sort of below their threshold of, of who they would work with so we've okay. got a good relationship and is the end game for december 19 is, is that to sell out is, is, is hopefully a big investor comes along or one of the big networks or is that not a consideration no. have you had any approaches at all um yeah there's been approaches, there's, there's been approaches over the years but um dan and i are, are, it's you know may sound very naive but it's not about the profit it's about creating something that we're you know very proud of we're passionate about media and we were that was being drained out of us and that was no fault of an individual or just the way that the market was was heading and we could either put up with it or get out of the industry completely or mm. you know create our own our own little oasis of, of doing things that we feel is the you know the right way Okay, right. Okay, so let's delve a bit more into, uh, Andrew mentioned there, uh, a bit of the differences between the independents and the networks. This has obviously been a hot topic for some time. Um, is, is, is there concrete evidence that you, the independents are taking more market share from the big networks? Or isn't it the truth of the matter that the big net networks still occupy around 80% of the market and big clients will go to them because they have scale? Uh, yes and no. Uh, so yes, networks still command the majority of the market. And yes, I think the very big clients will still go to the networks, and I think they're probably better served by the very big networks. Um, but in terms of evidence, if you look at the last year alone in 2017, yeah. independent agencies just in the top 100 put on 220 million of new billings. Yeah. The networks between them somehow conspired to lose 220 million. So there's a significant shift in terms of billings of where, where those billings sit in agencies. So you know, you're talking like a 500 million shift there. Okay. In, in one year alone. Right, okay. And there's been a whole of uh, big pictures, I think Sky, HSBC. I didn't see many of the names of the independents. I, I guess those businesses are too big for the independents at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, I don't have any problem saying that Sky at 250 million is yeah. too big for an agency <laughs> that builds 150. I mean, that's yeah, okay. that's a reality. Okay, so we had, uh, last week on the podcast, we had Dan Clays, who's the CEO of uh, OMD in the UK. Uh, we talked about the transparency issue. Um, I mean, independents talk a lot about transparency, about how you are more transparency than the agency networks. Um, could, why is that in particular? Is that because you don't involve yourself in anything like rebates and kickbacks or...? Um, from day one, December 19, we, you know, it was a core part of our business that we were going to earn, earn our revenue from our clients and, and clients pay us a, you know, a, fair, a fair whack for what we do and, and a fair price and, and not go in with undercutting other agencies to win business um, on that percentage. But I think the whole market had moved we had coming, you know, coming. We found in two thousand and ten, yeah. coming out of glo- uh, in the midst of a global recession, and procurement were all over every pitch. Right. And uh, the model was that it was a percentage versus billings, and procurement could work that percentage, and so that worked for them. Mm. Um, and it, and and so it drove that trend to um, agencies having to sort of look for other other ways to to 
to sustain revenue and grow revenue off of size of billions and aggregate aggregated um, buying and so that's the networks all shifted in that way whereas December 19 fortunately because we didn't have any of that legacy we started from day one with no clients but mm. they weren't on um, we, we, we've, we've maintained that um, you know we won't take any any media only rebates in any form okay um, and does that actually win your pitches is there any evidence that the transparency thing does that win business or um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that we've we've pulled you know numerous clients out of um, large networks. They're you know they're at the, the lower end of the scale, but clients you know it's you point out to a client that they they're doing business on four percent, but the revenues of that agency are in the twenty percent. There's something there that's not right. They're, they're earning their money other ways, and we 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 pose that question to to clients. Andrew? Yeah, so there are lots of pitches in market because of transparency. And, and transparency has, has, has sort of many, many mm. faces. One is on a financial level, but the, the other is also on measurement. Yeah. So a few pitches we are currently involved in are where the existing incumbent network agency does the measurement of the campaign. Right. And the client's question isn't so much the financial transparency, it's the results okay. transparency. And there is a breakdown of trust about what they think is working and what the agency are telling them is working, which obviously then backs into rebates and volume deals and everything else. But I think the transparency is really difficult because unless you are an advertiser of the size of Sky Mm. and or you employ Ubiquity or a third-party consultant who really knows what they're talking about, Mm. every agency can sit in front of a client and say they are transparent. And it is not impossible for a client to know who is genuinely transparent mm. and who is very good at saying they are transparent. Mm. So how do you resolve that then? Uh, well, that's, yeah, that ultimately okay. is up to a client or, or a third party. I mean, the big difference, you know, I'm not going to talk about any one agency or sure. any individuals, but one of the things that we say is that we, we say we're transparent, mm. but the difference is we know we're transparent because we own our P&L. Mm. So every single deal we do, every source of income we have, we can identify that because we are part of that transaction. In some network agencies, some of the deals are not done by the agency. Right. They're done by the holding companies where there may well be not quite the transparency that the agency CEOs see. I think that's all clearer to me, just about. <laughs> okay, I, th- I guess one big challenge for both of your businesses is, is the bigger the, 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 you get, the harder it is to provide a, a personalised service. So I guess at the moment, uh, when you're running your business, you can be available all the time to your top clients. But as you get bigger and bigger, it becomes, I don't know, if you get bigger and bigger clients, it becomes harder for you to be available, both Dave and Andrew, to your clients all the time. Is, is that a, a quandary? Is that a difficulty at the moment? Or? Um, no, I think that then comes down to employing the right people. You, you, know, you make sure that the team that you build around you buy into the core values of, mm-hmm. of the business. And, and when you've got very strong culture and values, picking the, the, the people that get it, understand it, it's it's then growing that team of, of, of people that are like-minded. And, and clients, we go in to see clients, but clients, you know, you've got a trusted pair of hands. They know that the wider team okay. um, are, are being managed by people that have the same views and, and yeah. Okay, Andrew? Yeah, I'd, I'd second that. I mean, we, um, I mean, frankly, I've got significantly better people in my agency to run client business than, you know, than sort of Ben or I. Uh, but because we give stake to the other partners in the agency, mm-hmm. they they have a, you know, a, a stake in the business and therefore okay. they have a stake in the quality 
and the high standards that we set ourselves. Okay, so obviously there's been, I think last year there was an exodus of, of bosses from media agencies in the UK, like Sir Paul Frampton, Tracy De Groot. Obviously they're left for, I think, various different reasons. Uh, one of them perhaps is the, um, the pressures of the job. I mean, obviously you've been, both been in media for some time. Do you, do you feel the pressures are higher than there have been uh, than ever before? Let's start with you, Dave. Um, no, it's a different set of pressures um, running, a, running an agency, and Andrew touched on this earlier, that the, the breadth of decisions that you have to make, it's, you know, mm -hmm. it's not just the, 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 the client, it's the, the, the staff, it's, it's, a, it's a whole whole breadth of decisions that need to be made, but because there are no shareholders that we're answering to, it's answering to ourselves or answering to Dan, Dan answering to I and, and, and to our team, um, but that's nowhere near as pressure if you've got shareholders, groups, holding groups, mm. um, bearing down on you. So I think it, it, it's most acute when you're going into um, a pitch yeah. and the pressures of we must win this piece of business and you're sitting in a room with, and there's nights before that go on until the early hours and it's just not conducive to a, a, a healthy outcome. Mm. I don't know if you agree, Andrew, that that pressure... Yeah, and I think the, the only pressure we feel is, I guess in that similar situation, but it's not the having to pitch because we only pitch for the business that we want to go for. But it's the, it's not really pressure actually, but again, it's the work demands that are put upon us. Mm -hmm. So if we are pitching against one of the big networks, which mm -hmm. we often do, you know, it's our 100 people versus their 500 people. Mm -hmm. So we've got significantly more sort of ground to make up to sure. put on a pitch that, that is comparable and competitive. But in terms of the pressure of running a business, and I agree completely, you know, the, the only pressure we have are the standards that we put upon ourselves. If we hit our target this year, great. If we don't, we don't. We change it. Okay. Um, you know, we don't have those kind of external pressures. And you talked about pitches. Uh, it sounds like you've been turning down quite a lot of pitches in the past 12 months. You know, roughly how many pitches do you turn down? What's the ratio, would you say? Um, it's about the ratio. I mean, I can give you some, some sort of absolutes. I mean, last year we turned down 60 million. And right. this year to date, it's 80 million. Right, and so if you put mm. that in context of how big we are as an agency, there is an awful lot of pitching going on and an awful lot of opportunity for independence. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. And you, Dave, you're turning down. Uh, yeah, this year we've turned okay. down twenty-five. Okay. Um, in terms of billings. Okay. Uh, because you, as Andrew said, you you can pick and choose the ones that are right for you, and if you've got very strong um, culture and values, and, and you know your bullseye client, then it's very easy to, to sit there when the opportunities come to say yes or no. Okay, so the days of this re relentless pitching are long gone then for, for your agencies, I guess? Um, no, because we are because we are relentlessly pitching, <laughs> okay. but we pitch for the ones that we want to, we turn down more than we go for, okay. and we ask the agency what they want to go for. Uh, you know, just last week we uh, resigned two clients last week. Who was Be that? I can't say. Okay. Uh, because the conditions the client were putting the team under just wasn't tenable. So it sort of works both ways. But pitching is a very big part of agency culture. Um, and at, at an independent, I think more junior people get an opportunity to do their thing than you would say in a network where you might have a pitch team rolled out uh, that you may never see again. Okay, fantastic. Now, last couple of questions. Uh, winning awards. I know Good Stuff won Media Week Agency of the Year. I think twenty seventeen. Yeah. Uh, what was that a big? Was that a big fillip for the for the business? Or I mean, I guess that's a nice award to have. Or do you think it, you got a lot of business on the back of it? What, what was what was the impact of winning that award? Um, I don't know if I can draw a direct line between that event and the business we've won since, or opportunities we've had. But in terms of is it fillip for the agency? Was it a, a huge morale boost? I mean, 
it was enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't really expect it, to be honest, but I think that when you set your stall out, when you spend so much of your, your time trying to convince clients, staff, and the industry that your way of doing things is a different, better way, yeah. to then get the endorsement of the industry that you know, what you're doing isn't half bad, it's huge for, the, for good stuffers, for clients, potential clients, for opinion formers. So, yeah, I know some people don't think awards matter. I think they matter hugely. Uh, and it's been a massive deal for us. Okay, and Dave, December 19 recently won uh, Best Small Company to Work For by a uh, campaign uh, magazine award. Have you seen any benefits or is that too early to say? Um, I, again, you can't draw a direct line, but in terms of staff morale um, and... You know, one of the things that when we started December 19 was to, to, to create a culture where we put our staff first and, and front and centre. And so to have a staff-based survey and come out number one is mm. is fantastic for us, you know, to feel that we've actually delivered on, on one of the core things that we, we wanted to when we started the business. Um, and, but, you know, attracting attracting new new staff, um, our latest, you know, two new staff, one's well, both from networks. Mm-hmm. And so having that to you know show it, it sort of that we're you know we may be small but we're we mean business and and we're delivering on, on the stuff that we say we're going okay fantastic uh, last couple of questions uh, I mean there have been recent media agency launches obviously had the launch of uh, truth which was a, a media agency based on blockchain we've got Sally Weaver's launching craft which I think good stuff is supporting I mean is the the environment for launching a media agency today I guess it is, is it harder than it's ever been do you think Andrew or uh, yes and no. Um, I think, is it difficult to launch a buying agency? Yes, it is. It is really difficult. I mean, we've been doing this now for six, seven years, and it takes a long time to kind of get your house in order, to get the efficiencies, to get the talent. Um, and that, that is very difficult. There are no two ways about that. But it, to set up a planning-led agency that can back into a buying agency, so, for example, Craft with Sally and Jen, mm-hmm. I think you'll I think you'll find a lot more people doing okay. that kind of thing, and we certainly, as an agency, will support anyone who wants their own front-end agency that we can help the back end with all the resources, the legal, the finances, um, and all the stuff that, frankly, is quite hard work. Okay, Dave. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with what Andrew's saying. That it's it's the having a great client relationship, and the client goes, look, actually, we buy you and, and not the agency you work within. Can Is there a way that we can make this work? It's, it's been going on for, for many years, and I think it's, it's never been easier in some respects to do that, but as, as Andrew says, the, the buying um, element and actually the running of a business. So the first couple of years of December 19th, sort of Dan and I getting our heads around actually running a business sure. um, whilst maintaining uh, mm. the, the, the looking after the, the, the core part that we do is looking after clients. You've got a, a, you know, a day job, which is that, and then a night job, which was the running of a business. And I think the first couple of years was very much us getting our confidence in that we can go out and do all the mm. stuff that needs to be done back in mm. to be able to, to deliver on our promises. Okay, and last question. If, if there's budding entrepreneurs listening, wanting to start up an agency, uh, in, in a couple of sentences, what advice would you give them? Call me. Okay, there we go. Lost <laughs> and Dave? And Dave? <laughs> yeah. Um, have, a, have a passion and, and just go for it. Right, okay. Right, uh, Andrew, Andrew and Dave, thank you very much.